Book One, Chapter Three of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book One, Chapter Three. Thus far, I have written in sore haste to tell as plainly and as briefly as possible that which has darkened all my life. Though it never leaves my waking thoughts, to dwell upon it before others is agony to me. Henceforth, my tale will flow perhaps more easily, until I fall again into a grief almost as dark, and am struck by storms of passion which childhood's stature does not reach. When the shock of the household, and the wonder of the county, and the hopes of constables raised by a thousand pounds reward, had subsided gradually, my mother continued to live in the old mansion, perhaps because none of her friends came forward to remove her. Under my father's will, she was the sole executrix, but all the estates, including house and park, were left to my father's nearest relative, as trustee for myself with a large annuity to my mother charged upon them. There were many other provisions and powers in the will, which are of no consequence to my story. The chief estate was large and rich, extending three or four miles from the house, which stood in a beautiful part of Gloucestershire. The entire rental was about £12,000 a year. My father, whose name was Henry Valentine Vaughan, being a very active man in the prime of life, had employed no steward, but managed everything himself. The park, and two or three hundred acres round it, had always been kept in hand. The rest was let to thriving tenants, who loved, as they expressed it, every hair on the head of a Vaughan. There was also a small farm near the sea, in a lonely part of Devonshire, but this was my mother's, having been left to her by her father, a clergyman in that neighbourhood. My father's nearest relative was his half-brother, Edgar Vaughan, who had been educated for the bar, and at one time seemed likely to become eminent. Then suddenly he gave up his practice and resided, or rather roved, abroad, during several years. Sinister rumours about him reached our neighbourhood, not long before my father's death. To these, however, the latter paid no attention but always treated his brother Edgar with much cordiality and affection. But all admitted that Edgar Vaughan had far outrun his income as a younger son, which amounted to about £600 a year. Of course, therefore, my father had often helped him. On the third day after that night, my guardian came to Vaughan Park. He was said to have hurried from London upon learning there what had happened. The servants and others had vainly and foolishly tried to keep from me the nature of my loss. Soon I found out all they knew, and when the first tit and horror left me, I passed my whole time, light or dark, in roving from passage to passage, from room to room, from closet to closet, searching every chink and cranny for the murderer of my father. Though heretofore a timid child, while so engaged I knew not such thing as a fear, but peered and groped and listened, feeling every inch of wall and wainscot, crawling lest I should alarm my prey, spying through the slit of every door and shaking every empty garment. 
certain boards there were near the east window which sounded hollow at these i scooped until i broke my nails in vain nurse maples locked me in her room held me at her side or even bound me to the bed my ravings forced her soon to yield and i would not allow her or anyone else to follow me the gloucester physician said that since the disease of my mind had taken that shape it would be more dangerous to thwart than to indulge it it was the evening of the third day and weary with but never of my search i was groping down the great oak staircase in the dusk hand after hand and foot by foot when suddenly the main doorbell rang the snow was falling heavily and had deadened the sound of wheels at once i slid as my father had taught me to do down the broad balustrade ran across the entrance hall and with my whole strength drew back the bolt of the lock there i stood in the porch unfrightened but with a new kind of excitement on me a tall dark man came up the steps and shook the snow from his boots the carriage lamp shone in my face i would not let him cross the threshold but stood there and confronted him he pretended to take me for some servant's child and handed me a parcel covered with snow i flung it down and said looking him full in the face i am clara vaughan and you are the man who killed my father carry her in john he said to the servant carry her in or the poor little thing will die what eyes and he used some foreign oath what wonderful eyes she has that burst of passion was the last conscious act of the young and over-laboured brain for three months i wandered outside the gates of sorrow my guardian as they told me was most attentive throughout the whole course of the fever and even in the press of business visited me three times every day meanwhile my mother was slowly shaking off the stupor which lay upon her and the new fear of losing me came through that thick heaviness like the wind through a fog doubtless it helped to restore her senses and awoke her to the work of life then as time went on her former beauty and gentleness came back and her reason too as regarded other subjects but as to that which all so longed to know not a spark of evidence could be had from her the faintest allusion to that crime the name of her loved husband the mere word murder uttered in her presence and the consciousness would leave her eyes like alone withdrawn upright she sat and rigid as when she was found that night with the lines of her face as calm and cold as moonlight only two means there were by which her senses could be restored one was low sweet music the other profound sleep she was never thrown into this cataleptic state by her own thoughts or words nor even by those of others when in strict sequence upon her own but any attempt to lead her to that one subject no matter how craftily veiled was sure to end in this a skilful physician who had known her many years judged after special study of this disease in which he felt deep interest that it was always present in her brain but waited for external aid to master her i need not say that she was now unfit for any stranger's converse and even her most careful friends must touch sometimes the motive string as i recovered slowly from long illness the loss of my best friend and the search for my worst enemy revived and reigned within me 
Sometimes my guardian would deign to reason with me upon what he called my monomania. When he did so, I would fix my eyes upon him, but never try to answer. Now and then, those eyes seemed to cause him some uneasiness. At other times, he would laugh and compare them pleasantly to the blue fire-damp in a coal-mine. His dislike of their scrutiny was well known to me, and incited me the more to urge it. But in spite of it all, he was ever kind and gentle to me, and even tried some grimly playful overtures to my love, which fled from him with loathing, albeit a slow conviction formed that I had wronged him by suspicion. Edgar Mullins Vaughan, then about thirty-seven years old, was, I suppose, a very handsome man, and perhaps a more striking presence than my dearest father. His face, when he was pleased, reminded me strongly of the glance and smile I had lost, but never could it convey that soft, sweet look, which still came through the clouds to me, now and then in dreams. The outlines of my guardian's face were keener, too, and stronger, and his complexion far more swarthy. His eyes were of a hard steel blue, and never seemed to change. A slight lameness, perceptible only at times, did not impair his activity, but served him as a pretext for declining all field sports, for which, unlike my father, he had no real taste. His enjoyments, if he had any, and I suppose all men have some, seemed to consist in the management of the estate, which he took entirely upon himself, in satiric literature and the news of the day, or in lonely rides and sails upon the lake. It was hinted, too, by Thomas Kenwood, who disliked and feared him strangely, that he drank spirits or foreign cordials in his own room late at night. There was nothing to confirm this charge. He was always up betimes, his hand was never tremulous, nor did his colour change. End of chapter 3